people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Bonjour. Also back in the booth is Mr. Keith Gordon. I'm not saying anything in French. I should take your advice on that one. In fact, I'm apologizing now for the butchery I'm about to commit of everybody's name. Of every, It's just, I'm like that Steve Martin joke about, well, he died. He spoke French. That's me. So I'm just getting it out of the way right now. Chapeau means hat. Oof means egg. It's like those French have a different word for everything. French Month continues with a look at Marcel Carnet's Children of Paradise. Released in 1945 and set in the mid to early 1800s, the film tells a winding tale of the woman Garance, played by the singular actress Arletti, and the four men in her orbit, the mime Baptiste, the actor Frédéric, the criminal Lassenaire, and the aristocrat Edouard. We will be spoiling this film, which has been called by some as one of the greatest films of all time. So if you haven't seen Children of Paradise, you really owe it to yourself to just turn off this podcast, go out and watch the movie. You can come back if you want. We're just going to be singing its praises for, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half, something like that. So we'll still be around. So Keith, when was the first time you saw Children of Paradise and what did you think? First time I saw it was, I believe, in high school. Um, I think it was part of a film class I took. And 
believe it or not, I had not seen it again until now. Uh, one of the delights of doing the show is being brought back to great films that like got put aside for whatever stupid reason. So uh, just to be honest, I don't, I remember, I thought it was great. I remember thinking what an amazing movie, but I didn't remember. I remember images. I remembered the mime. I remembered the, but I didn't remember the story really. I didn't remember the details. It, so it was like, it was sort of like getting to see it the first time now. Um, so that was pretty exciting. Uh, it says out there, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking, boy, I'm stupid for not having seen this in the 45 years in between. Uh, but it was really wonderful to revisit it and realize how rich and how complicated and how grown up the, the everything about it, the writing, the direction, the performances, it, it's just remarkable. Um, so thank you for, thank you for getting me to sit down and see it again. And Sam, how about yourself? I want to say I first saw it probably somewhere between 10 and 12 or so years ago when I just went down this big like classic French cinema rabbit hole where I watched you know all these Clouseau films and every single Melville film and I started to make my way through poetic realism and Marcel Carnet's work and I remember watching this maybe like three days in a row, which I don't know how I had the time for that, but I think my life was maybe less busy then. <laughs> but based on the plot description, I knew that it probably would be something I would like, but it just, it's one of those movies that it's so hard to actually describe why it is so perfect. But I like, I can't even look at Baptiste without feeling like I'm going to cry. It just is... <laughs> It's so good. So I had never actually seen this movie before. This was one of those movies on my shame list where I was like, I got to fix this. Same thing with next week when I'm talking about rules of the game. Come on, man. What are you doing here? You need to watch these classic films. So this one, I just said, all right, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch this. And holy shit, I was not disappointed. I was just enthralled. And then... Not uh, not three days in a row, but two days in a row, I watched this. And, I mean, it gets better on subsequent viewings. And the first time, I was just gobsmacked at how much I enjoyed this film. Just how well it was put together, the acting, that it was based on historical fact, that there these characters are actually pulled out of history. I mean, it's a, such a meal of a film, and it's just so rich. It's like it's like French cooking. You know, you feel almost like heavier after you walk away from it because it's just the emotion and all of this. But it's so well crafted, and just the story is so well done. I mean, the writing in this movie alone, wow, it is wonderful. And when it comes to a what three hour and ten minute runtime, it just flies by. Especially that second half, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. There's no way that there is still half of this movie to go. I don't know if it's that old like trick when you get into a theater and you know you have the intermission and it always feels like the second half is shorter than the first half. Sometimes it is, but with this one I thought it was pretty well split right down the middle, but that second half just flies by. It's probably the shortest three plus hour movie I've ever watched in terms of just the experience. And I think it's just because it's so damn entertaining. I mean a lot of movies that are over three hours are very good for you or they're very arty or they're very this is also just a great story. It's like the thing it kept reminding me of was Dickens, you know, and the way Dickens is just so damn entertaining and fun and funny and tragic. And you just get lost in the story. I mean, there's all sorts of other levels to it, but it's just great storytelling. 
And consequently, yeah, I was like, I, I, I got to the end. I was like, that, that story can't be the end. But it is thoroughly fun. And that's unusual in a three-hour, ten-minute movie. It's like, even though I know what happens and I know how I'm going to respond to certain scenes, watching them nail those performances, it's like a tour de force of acting. Like, yes, a lot of it is also due to the great writing that you mentioned, but it just it's one of those movies where it's like every single person working on this film was like firing on all cylinders that year. And it's hard to believe that a movie that it's is so like big and epic and it's like they create this like really elaborate, very crowded universe. But it, like, it's just crazy to think that like all of this technical behind the scenes, sheer epic scale stuff is happening during World War II when they like don't really <laughs> don't have ideal conditions. And like the set keeps getting damaged crazy well yeah didn't they shoot most of this down in nice to kind of get away from paris and the government of paris and just like we're separate we're doing our own thing and there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes as far as who might be a collaborator who isn't i mean the guy who originally played jericho apparently they recast him completely and which is just amazing to me because jericho runs through the this entire film and i'm like how did you just reshoot the scenes with his role? That doesn't seem possible to me. The fact that they shot it so far away from Paris and from like the French governmental military headquarters was also a way for them. And it's like this is one of again, one of those rare films where it's so perfect but also the behind the scenes making of history is just like endlessly fascinating. Like because they were that far away, if you so from what I understand, like the movie is packed with hundreds of extras. And apparently a lot of those extras were French resistance members who were basically using the film as their like day job cover. <laughs> and then also that a lot of the extras were people that were approved is theoretically they all had to be approved by the Vichy government. So you had this weird mix of you had the Nazi extras and the resistance extras. And that was its own weird story. I mean, I actually don't know that if people were aware of who they were acting next to, but at least one of the things I was reading talked about that you had the whole split of friends going on on that set. Oh, yeah. And you also had a lot of Jewish people working either literally undercover where someone else was like claiming credit for their work with their participation or people just kind of flying under the radar like everyone from the set designer to some of the the cast and crew members like wild stuff going on well right in the main credit there is a credit saying basically to the they are hidden collaborators for the uh, person who wrote the score and the set designer because during shooting, they had to have beards. They had to have people that were, you know, doing the work in their name uh, because they were both Jewish. And it was all and and they actually delayed the release of the film when they realized, oh, wait a minute, the liberation may be coming. Rather than being the and last of all the occupation, we'd like to be the first film of the liberation. And they were actually able to stick a credit on saying, here's two key people that had to work on this movie, you know, uh, undercover, essentially. And it's actually right in the, in the front credits. 
I do wonder if some of that liberatory, so close to being on the other side of the war, at least like where France as a country was concerned, has to do with some of the energy behind this film because it's it's so intense. Like it doesn't feel like they're shooting this historical romantic tragedy type story if just I don't know exactly how to explain why. And some of it is definitely in the dialogue where they say these things where you could easily read other things into it that are specifically about the war. But it's very hard to describe why this works so well. I feel like I see a lot of metaphors inside of the film for what's going on in the war. You were just talking about, you know, the two factions kind of side by side. And then you get that fight on stage at one point, and it's like, these people are going to this theater, and these people are going to stick with this theater. And then you have that whole divide between the the mind theater and then the spoken word theater. And you get the division between Baptiste and Frederic, and just, you know, there's not necessarily a blood rivalry between them, but they are two of those people that are vying for Garant's and her affections. And you get two more people and you get one who's like, you know, the aristocrat and you get the other one who is very much, you know, basically a black marketeer, it feels like. I mean, the guy's name, it, it it's so close to larceny. It's just kind of crazy to me. Like every time I would see his name, I'd be like, oh, that's I know his name because it's so close to larceny. So he was very easy. And plus, you know, he, he has very everybody has a very distinct look in this, especially that guy with those crazy spit curls and uh Man, he's so dastardly, even though he doesn't do horrible, horrible things. I still just can't stand that guy. And, and I kind of love to hate him. He is very good at that, at sort of giving off those like mustache twirling vibes. While I also really appreciate that the script keeps him grounded enough so that he doesn't like go over the top and become this kind of cartoonish villain. And I think the most impressive thing in a way is that it like the sort of balancing weight that it gives all four of these male characters. So you don't just like clearly root for one person other than maybe Baptiste. And even Baptiste has his moments where he is really kind of awful. And that's part of what I love about the movie is that he is the most empathetic character, but he also it can be terribly selfish and terribly caught in his own feelings and his own pain. There's stuff that he does with his, you know, the love of his life and the first, or, or the woman who's in love with him and then he becomes his wife later on. Yeah, where she's, he's not, he's, it's inadvertent, but it's very shallow to not realize that he's ripping her heart out, you know, by a, by being so actively in love with another woman in front of her. And, and, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about, about the film is that everybody's got these moments where no matter how much you love them and are empathetic to them, where it's like, woof, that's, that's kind of awful, but in a way where you go, but that could be me. You don't hate them. You understand it. And and for me, even the villain has moments where you get where he's coming from. And and it's very modern in that way. It's very, there's a richness to the characters that feels, you know, not the way we think of period films, certainly not American period films, where there is neat heroes and villains. It's a complicated movie. Write it down to our central character, a, 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 a Garotz, who is morally very complicated. Uh, you know, she loves everybody, but in that kind of way she also commits to no one and that that's part of what leads to all the complications um there's also something in the acting that i i i can't i wish i could say it brilliantly but 
It's not period acting, which I love. I mean, everybody's appropriate to period. I mean, you believe it. You're looking at the, you know, 1830s. It it looks right. It, but I so often to this day when I see actors in movies about a period, feel like I'm watching an actor acting like the person in the period, like like that's what they're focused on. And there's a naturalism in this without ever feeling it's betraying the period. It still feels like their their focus as actors is on the emotion of what's happening in the scene, not in portraying the 1830s. And and it kind of is remarkable because it, it it takes a wall that some period films can have and completely gets rid of it. And it's sort of like, yes, the costumes are of a time, the look is of a time, but the emotions are of this moment. Yeah, the film is 80 years old almost, 78 this year, I believe. And it feels so fresh. I didn't feel like I was watching something that was stuck in time and that it's, you know, 1945 when it comes out, set in those early 1800s period, they could have gone really over the top and they could have been like, well, this is how people acted in the 1800s. But instead, there's, to your point, there's such a naturalism to it that I was just like, oh yeah, I can relate to every single one of these characters, every single one of these flawed characters. And yeah, I love that they're all flawed. I love that every single one of them has a little something wrong with them. There's nobody where I'm like, oh, that, that is the upstanding person. Maybe Maybe Baptiste Kid, who is like one of the cutest darn kids I've ever seen in my life. But otherwise, it's like, wow, everybody has something going on, whether it's openly plotting or just some sort of foible or like even when we meet Baptiste's uh, father, he's talking about what a horrible son that he has and he's embarrassed about him and he smacks him on the head out in front of all these people at this kind of carnival scene. But he eventually comes around to him, but you know that he had this horrible opinion about his son until his son ends up basically saving the theater. Maybe that's part of why I love Baptiste despite his flaws, because so much of his dialogue, especially in the his first like couple major scenes, especially there's this great scene where he sees like he's fallen in love with Garance because he sees her in the street but then later he sees her at a bar with Larsenaire and there's this you know kind of great scuffle he gets thrown out the window but you know rises to fight again and when they walk home it's like the characters are I think for the first time in the whole movie they're having like a real emotionally vulnerable intimate conversation that feels so modern but he has all this dialogue about how misunderstood he's felt and anytime he's suffering, he just goes to sleep so that he can dream and all of that stuff about like the children of the moon. And it, there's just something so kind of otherworldly about him that I feel like David Bowie must have seen this film a hundred times like earlier in his career, especially when he was really into the Perot costume, which which you see Baptiste wearing here. But He's so good in that role. He's so good in that role and so good out of that role. It was very surprising. At first, I thought, is this character ever going to speak? Yeah, I wasn't really sure if we would ever hear the real Baptiste voice, if we would ever see him without the makeup on. But when he gets out of that and becomes, you know, the the other version of himself, it's just like, oh, okay, yeah. And like, yeah, I, I feel for him and I really want him to do well. I feel horrible what he's doing with Natalie and especially after they get married and he's just like kind of tosses her over. And I really like how she 
sends their child to see Garance and be like, hey, this is what we have. You know, just this almost like sending her a signal, sending her a letter in the form of, here's our son, please leave us alone, basically. But even the way that he treats Garance in the first half, it's it's like part of what's so realistic but so frustrating about some of the character's behavior is it's like if they just would calm down a little bit and be a little patient and be a little bit more open to things, then chances are their relationships would work out. But it's like Garance invites him back to her bedroom. Like she doesn't literally say it, but it is explicit. But because she doesn't immediately profess this like insane degree of love that he feels for her, then he just flees from the room. And it's like you're obsessed with someone that you you don't really know. And the way that you're doing this kind of constant fantasizing, it's like it's not healthy. And you probably could have had a relationship with her, but you sort of ruined it. And then, of course, she ruins it, too. <laughs> yeah, but he kind of basically shoves her in the arms of uh, Frederic, just with like, oh, well, here, let's get you a room and push you up over here. And, oh, it just happens to be kitty corner to his room. And by the way, why is Baptiste still at the lodging house or the, the boarding house? When he is married, I can't, uh, that was the strangest thing to me. I was like, why do you still have this room that you can go to unless that's like his private room or something like as for, in case he needs to have an affair? I don't know why he still has that going on when he still has his wife and child. Well, I assumed it's because, I mean, he's become now a big star at that point of, you know, he's a, and it's right from what it's my sense of the geography is it puts him right near the theater and it's kind of like a crash. To me, it seems like a crash pad. It's like a place for him to go between performances, whatever. You know, I, I had the feeling that that probably was not unusual to have a, a space, not necessarily for affairs, but just, you know, when he would go to the theater or come from the theater. That was how I read it, that, you know, there's a home that, that he spends most of his time at, but that's some sort of artistic hideaway when he's developing stuff and working on stuff. I That's my projection, however. I don't know. I'd actually be curious if you guys thought that but that's how that's what i saw it as yeah it's really confusing because in the first half of the film they he seems it seems like he and natalie are not married and she talks about how she's in love with him and he never says that he reciprocates those feelings and they there's this interesting line of dialogue when he helps frederick get a room at that boarding house there's a line of dialogue where the woman who runs the boarding house says like he goes out because he basically drops Frederic off late at night, gets him a room and then proceeds to go back out. And the woman who runs the boarding house says, yeah, that's what he does every night. He just wanders the streets. So it's like, were they married in the first half or did that happen sometime after Garance leaves? To me, it, it felt pretty clearly, but I wish I could have evidence to support this, but I, I just kind of immediately saw it as in the first half, they're not married. She, uh, Natalie wants him and he's kind of debating what to do. And then we jump forward that six years in the intermission. And that feels like that's when they got married, had a child, all that. I, I feel like there may have maybe evidence for that because I, I kind of quote unquote knew that, even though I can't think of the moments that made me know that. But to me, it seemed like there was a before and after that the intermission covers that 
you know, he still, in the first half, he really couldn't have left Natalie and it would have been cruel. But if he had not chickened out that moment when uh, when uh, Gross has basically come into my arms, come into my bed, and if he had not kind of walked away from that moment, that opportunity to not, instead of being obsessed with perfect love, to accept the real love, a real woman right there, sort of opening herself up and saying, you know, I'm sort of yours. I feel like that was a fatal moment because when he doesn't take it and he backs away, then he ends up in this, you know, sort of loveless marriage or, or, or far from perfect marriage where he's spending his entire marriage pining for a woman that he chose in the, sort of in the moment he could have had, he, he didn't, he didn't take that. But I could be wrong and I could be just reading into things that if it could be telling my story and if it's not the story, it's in the film, but that's what I walked away from with. That's the impression I got as well. I was reading an article last night and they were talking about, you know, blah, 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 his wife. And I was like, whoa, whoa, his wife. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. in the second half more his wife, but, but I was thinking of the first half of the film. So I was very confused because I was like, I don't think they're married. And then, you know, rewatching the second half, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. This is making a lot more sense here. Okay. So yeah, I think that he settles for Natalie, which is really bad that he settles for her, especially because I think that the woman that plays Natalie is absolutely gorgeous, if not even more stunning than Garance. But Garance has that way that she carries herself and that kind of classic beauty. I mean, the, she, her as the statue is kind of like a perfect thing. And I did have a question, too, for you guys, as far as, is she the one that is holding the mirror to herself in the tub of water, or is that a different person? I think that's her. What I'm talking I think it was her. Wow. And then, because she shows up kind of quickly on the uh, boulevard after that. So I was like, wait, was she in the show? Was she not in the show? Is that like, is she like kind of a struggling actress, wants to be an actress? Because she kind of falls into the, the theater very easily after that. Well, I think, I think, yeah, I think that's her really her introduction because I think what's important about it is they introduce her as truth, that idea of this, this naked woman is truth. And in some ways, Garros is truth. I mean, like everybody else in the in the film is sort of acting out a sort of uh, their tweaked version of truth. And she's the one, I think, who the film's point of view is that her idea of love, which is kind of an open-hearted love and a love in the moment and a love that's both carnal and spiritual, but is also isn't bounded by uh, predetermined rules, but is is responsive to what's going on between people in that moment. I feel like the film's sort of saying that is truth, and it introduces her as truth because of it. And all the men are kind of trying to make truth bend to their own personal whims. And like truth doesn't do that in the end. And I kind of feel like that's one of the central metaphors of the film. So I assume that's her at the beginning also because that's the introduction of this woman is truth. And that she spends the movie sort of being that. To think about Arletti's role in this film, like to have this film made in 1944, come out in 1945, where the central protagonist is this woman who just wants freedom and just wants to live life on her own terms. It feels so modern. And also the fact that Arletti was in her late 40s when she's playing this romantic lead that everyone in the movie is just obsessed with. Her charisma, she she's such an incredible performer. And it's such a great modern thing i mean yeah it's sort of its attitude about women and sexuality i mean you know or you know she's not the ingenue you know there is a beautiful ingenue with it, it, the woman who plays natalie is gorgeous and but there's something about this sophisticated woman again who has got this sense of truth and knowledge and wisdom 
that in this film is treated as more sexy and more desirable than the perfectly featured 23-year-old. And I think that's really cool and very much, well, not what we think, again, you think of American films that period and all that, it's not, and it's still a, a, an attitude we don't see that often. I also can also to have a leading woman who is openly carnal and openly, literally loves sex and has affairs and it is passionate and physical and probably more comfortable with the sexuality than any of the male characters. And all of that feels so ahead of its time. Maybe maybe French, you know, but certainly ahead of where American films were by by miles and, and we're ahead of where films still are often. Yeah, and she doesn't need anybody to the point where the end is her going off on her own. That there there is no like, oh I'm gonna stick around here for Frederick or I'll stick around for Baptiste. I mean uh, the the count is dead. Uh, the uh, Larsenaire is going to jail, and she just she's like, okay, yeah, and she just leaves. And it's like I would kind of like to know like the continuing adventures of Garance and just what does she do next? Because yeah, she is fascinating. She really is the the center of this film. Her presence overshadows a lot of things, but she's not. Her personality isn't so big that you're just thinking of her every single scene. Like you're just seeing how these things are playing. But it's not like, oh, what's how's Grant's going to react or how's this going to be? Because you really just care about all of these characters rather than just just Baptiste or just Frederic or just Garance. But I, you know, I think Baptiste is the main character if we have to put a label on it. But although these other characters are so fascinating as well, I mean, I love every single scene that Frederic is in. I love that he's you know, so obsessed with Shakespeare that he's reading Othello in that one of those early, early scenes that he gets to play Othello later on. And we're playing with, you know, the, the story of Othello, the story of jealousy and, you know, just him still dressed up as Othello behind the scenes later on where he's just stoking these fires. And he just seems to love to, to fuck around with people so much. And, you know, the guy, gets into trouble so often that he, you know, has that duel that you get to see uh, him messing with those writers play and just loving it. He's having such a ball being the bad boy. And you can definitely see why Garance is drawn to him, especially when Baptiste runs away from her in that early scene, because he's just so handsome and charming and charismatic. And he has the same kind of chaotic need for freedom and for different experiences. And so it's like one of my favorite things about the script is the ways in which it sort of shows to you how certain characters are different and are on opposite sort of poles from each other. But then you have all these scenes spending time showing how the individual character, the like main sort of five characters, how they all relate to each other and how they interact and so to see his scenes with Baptiste when they're becoming sort of friendly and getting along, it's I think maybe that's why this feels like such a short three hour movie, because all of the scenes feel necessary and they do so much to develop those characters. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any unnecessary scenes in this film, and I can't think of a one. And even when it comes to taking your time with seeing Larsenaire going to the Turkish baths and setting all this stuff up. I mean, it's it takes a little while for that scene to play out, but it's the perfect amount of time. There's nothing where I'm just like, oh, hurry up, would you? It's it's all very well done. And I swear that 
with Othello and the Turkish baths, I just kept thinking of uh, Wells as Othello and how he uses the Turkish baths and that. And it was Othello, right, where he had the whole Turkish bath scene because it was the the thing where they were kind of shooting that piecemeal as well. And, yeah. you know, this Turkish bath here is actually different than this other one where this guy gets killed. And it's like, you know, just him cutting all of these things together. That whole story of like, you know, when you open a door in Spain, you uh, you actually walk through a place in Italy kind of thing for, you know, the way that he had to piecemeal that movie together. Yeah. And I think there is some of that going on here, too, because of the kind of fractured way that they had to shoot which seems like a nightmare considering the very specific set pieces and all the extras, but it looks so seamless. I would never think that this was a piecemeal production by any means. It just looks so lavish. I just recently saw Murnau's Sunrise, and you've got that whole street that he had constructed, um, this massive, massive set, and then I look at the Boulevard to Crime or cream and just see that and realize, oh, this was all put together for this movie and just realize how extensive and expensive this thing must have been and just how smart it is to use just that one street for almost everything as they're going around. And then you get the, let me see if I can see this in a, in the correct way. I love how you get the carnival atmosphere at the very beginning, and then you get the carnival atmosphere at the very end. And especially all of those people that are dressed exactly like Baptiste, it's just almost like mocking him when you see all of these people in the same outfit. Yeah, the set design does a lot of work here, too. It just I feel like there's no aspect of this movie we could talk about that feels subpar or like it's not as superior as the others. It's just it's wild. And I, I get why this gets so much universal critical love. I mean, if somebody tried to tell me that this was the best film ever made, I don't think I would be able to argue And I'm bad at picking favorites. <laughs> it's like there's so many films where it's like, oh, this is the best movie ever made. Oh, you got to see this. And then you watch it and you're like, you're like, mm. Meh. Yeah, I can see why you like it. <laughs> but this one, I was like, oh, wow, they weren't kidding around. This this is the real deal. One of the things that was so interesting to me is, it's you know, people talk a lot about how epic it is. There's this whole thing of it kept showing up and everything about how it was sort of the French equivalent of Gone with the Wind, which I really just didn't see. Um, yeah, no way. And because what this has, and, and, and I can't think of many films that have it, is it's an incredibly intimate epic. I mean, it, it is lavish, and the production line is incredible, and there's crowd scenes. And, but at the end of the day, that's not what the movie's about. All that is just to create the world for these human beings that were really wrapped up in. But what I remember from the film are the much more intimate moments, are the faces, are the, you know, and, and it's not to take away from the, all that other stuff, but sometimes I feel like epics are about being epic. It's like, okay, I'm watching this film because the sets are so incredible and that's what I'm thinking about whether, it, and, and some of the great films ever made, whether it's Blade Runner or Lawrence Arabia or, you know, but, but that's kind of what your film is in some way almost about. And in this movie, it isn't, it's about these people. And then yes, the sets are incredible, but, but they don't scream, look at the set, you know, like in some ways, like if you didn't know that street, which is one of the most amazing sets ever made, if you didn't know they built it and you found, they found a great old street. You'd think they found a great old street. It's like, 
everything is there just to create the reality of these people. It's not there to show off. And I think that feels very different. So when people throw around the word epic with this movie, I almost feel like it's misleading because it, it doesn't have the tone of an epic. And I like that because I find most epics are, are way too self-conscious about their epicness. I could not agree with that more. And it's interesting because so many, like to your point, so many things get called epics just because they have a big budget or lots of locations or or something like that. But usually a real epic, it covers multiple generations. So you're seeing all these different kind of branches of a family tree here or of a system of government or something. But here it really is that epic quality is just world building in a way. And the thing that I think is, or one of the many things that I think is so beautiful about the film is it makes it feel like these deeply personal experiences are so intimate and so personal, but on some level also kind of universal. And it it's like such a hard thing to nail that I still don't know how they got this kind of lightning in a bottle situation. I mean, even when you just look at the side characters, you know, Baptiste's father or Larsenaire's Avril or um, Jericho, the ragman, all of those characters are so richly drawn. You know, Avril has, I don't know, 10, 12 lines at most, not very much at all. But you get those great scenes of him menacing Baptiste or... Um, I love his reaction to the murder in the Turkish bath and just that you don't see the murder, you see his reaction to it. And it's just like, oh, that's really cool. And then, like I said, you've got Jericho kind of tying all of this stuff together. He kind of just meanders through the, the, the whole story. I mean, it's him that we hear first in this whole movie, his little trumpet noise. And you get that as this audio, audio motif throughout this whole thing. And I love that his name's Jericho. He's got a little trumpet. And just how he comes in and he does this whole shtick with, oh, it's Jericho, the the so and so, and he just has like this whole like riff that he'll do every single time, and it's always like these different titles that he's giving him himself. I just I, I love that, and I love especially when he confronts Baptiste towards the end when he knows that he's being parodied up on screen, up on stage, I should say, with uh, Baptiste's father playing Jericho basically and getting murdered. Um, I love that he's just like, you know, hey, you're using my image. How can you do that? <laughs> it's it's great. I, I just, I love that character. And I'm very unfamiliar with um, the actor who I know was uh, one of uh, Renoir's, was it his older? Pierre Renoir. Um, he's the older brother of Jean Renoir, the director, but he's the the son of the painter, I now need to go back because he played Magritte in an early uh, uh, role, I want to say like from 32, and now I'm just like, oh, I want to see this guy more things. I especially want to see him play Magritte. He's got one of those great, I mean, everyone in this film does, but the elder Renoir has just this great face that I think lends itself to so many different types of roles. He He's really kind of unforgettable. And he has a lot of people to compete with in this one. Yeah, you cannot mistake one character for another in this movie. And they're all so well-written and well-played. I mean, the woman who is who runs the boarding house or the apartment where, you know, I mean, she's so funny and sexy and 
playful and odd and flirtatious. She's this older woman, but she clearly loves to flirt with the guests. And I mean, everybody's got a story. It's like somebody once said to me when I was working on a film that the best films you feel like you could follow any person who has one line and you could follow their whole story for a movie. Like that's when you've got a great movie is like when everything is so rich that yes, we don't choose to, to follow the guy who owns the bookstore, but you could. It feels, you know, you could go off and follow his story. And this movie has that feel. Like everybody we meet, even if it's very briefly, is never just functional. Nobody's just a waiter or the, everyone has a life. And we, the, both the writer and director make sure we get a glimpse of that life enough to know that that person doesn't only exist in the scene where they're serving a function. And I think that's remarkable. It's very rare. I mean, the old beggar who plays that he's blind, but then actually is very talented when it comes to uh, knowing the cut carrot and quality of like gold and jewels and all these things at the bar. I love that guy. He's only in like two scenes, but he's just amazing. It's like, oh, where, where's this guy? I want more of this guy. Like to your point. Yeah. I'd like every single person. I want to know more. I want to know what Jericho's story is. How did he get to be where he is? How did he get to be this person? You know, like, tell me that about every single person in this. And it feels like they all have these richly drawn backstories where you do feel like they've all lived this life and you feel like you're being taken along on this journey. You don't feel like you're on the outside looking in. You feel, and I think it's very important that, you know, the the theater go through this whole thing as well. You are not just in the audience watching the performance. You are all almost always on stage or behind stage and you get to see those very intimate moments of behind the scenes and get to see how the sausage is made how we have these you know the backdoor johnnies of the count or you've got the the infighting of these different actors and you've got you know frederick when he comes off of the stage and he's just like i'm dying to speak you know i'm having such a hard time with all this mime shit i just want to have lines you know give me great dialogue that i can chew on and i love that we get to go backstage almost even more than we're in front uh, though the, all of the scenes of the stuff that's going on on stage is wonderful and again nothing i would cut all of it just plays so wonderfully especially to see baptiste and the way that he does his mime stuff it's delightful every single time. Yeah, I think it's so important that they got someone like Jean-Louis Barrault, who plays Baptiste, who had real-life mime training, because those moments where you're watching the same performance that the audience is watching are just... It's like you can't take your eyes off him. He's such a powerful physical performer that... In a way, it almost reminds me of, and it's like a total opposite energy, but it almost reminds me of somebody like Toshiro Mifune, who, you know, is so great in these really physical roles where he's sword fighting and, and things like that. But even when he's not fighting, he just has this like very dramatic sense of of his own body. And you definitely get like a much maybe more effeminate, more chaotic version of that with Barrow, but it's like I don't even know who's the best performer in this movie. They're all just, just perfect. I'm having a hard time with this. The guy that plays Frederic, um, Pierre Brasseur, he 
also was the doctor in Eyes Without a Face is what I'm reading. I don't see how that's possible. Yeah, he is another one of those performers from the period who just like, I think they really like, like if you can picture him with those like big gray old man eyebrows and a lab coat and like maybe 15 more pounds, he looks like a totally different person. And the fact that he's so like that, yes, that movie was made 15 years later, so he is a lot older. But I think some of my favorite actors are these kinds of French guys who played such a range of masculine types, like definitely Brusser when he's younger plays these kinds of like leading male roles and kind of, you know, Lothario scoundrels, but could also have so much gravity and physical presence when he wanted to it's just the the 40s the late 30s like he's also in port of shadows but the late 30s and into the 40s when they go from poetic realism to struggling to make films under the occupation it just resulted in so much great cinema in such a crazy short period of time yeah, I'm looking at a whole host of photos of him, and it isn't until he turns to the side when he's older that I can recognize him as being Frederic because he's got that that nose is very distinct. And I'm looking at even like kind of flipping back and forth between the 1950s version of him and the 1940s version of him. And I'm just like, okay, I can kind of see it, but it's just amazing the transformation. Yeah, he does have that kind of face where I think he's very well suited to period pieces. Like he's in a version of The Count of Monte Cristo from later in the 40s that I haven't seen but really want to just because I think he would be great in it. And I didn't realize, oh, he's also in Goto, The Island of Love. I forgot about that. Yes. That he's the governor. Yeah. Gosh, what a career this guy had. Everybody who worked on this movie had that kind of just insane all over the place career. And then did I read right that Arletti was, didn't she go to jail or something? I don't want to go to, I mean, you could talk about this for a whole hour, but basically this thing, this very distinctive thing that happened in France in 1944, 1945, and a little bit into 1946, it's like the French really did not participate in the resistance on the scale that people said they did after the war and were so desperate to be seen as these, you know, proud French resistors that people just didn't want to be seen as collaborators, even when many of them were. And so highly public figures like specifically Arletti were made into scapegoats. And so she had a relationship with a Nazi officer. And because of that, they basically shaved her head, paraded her through the streets and like drew a swastika on her head. She was convicted in court. And I think she was supposed to spend like a year in jail, but it was it was really like you're going to go to this chateau and have to stay there and live this quiet life. And I think she was able to rehabilitate her reputation and get her career back a couple of years later. But it's such an extreme example of how that was dealt with socially. It's it's crazy. And I like I don't know how she got through that. 
Yeah, because I remember also reading that she ended up being on like money uh, after her death. And I was like, well, they're not about to put, you know, somebody who's a collaborator on commemorative coins unless we've gone completely away from that. On November 8th, 2016, America elected Donald J. Trump as her 45th president. To commemorate this historic event, American Mint has released its official Donald Trump presidential coin. How does that happen? So that's good to know that her, she was able to survive that, but that sounds like a horrific experience. It related in this very funny line that I think is so Arletti and also really ties into Garance's character. So allegedly, I don't, I haven't seen this like written in an actual biography or like where the, the interview that it's from, but allegedly afterwards she explained she basically was trying to say, like, I wasn't in a relationship with this guy because I was a Nazi sympathizer. You just you love who you love and or at least you date who you date. And and she said, you know, my heart is French or my heart belongs to France, but my ass belongs to the world, <laughs> which I think is is kind of a crude PG version. I think the actual translation is more like my heart belongs to France, but my cunt belongs to the world. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> yeah, I could hear that coming out of her mouth. Have either of you seen Carnet's film before this called Le Visiteur du Soir or like The Visitors of the Evening, I think is how it's sometimes translated. You know, although now I want to because like this got me so excited about his films that I had seen a few of them. But I'd never seen that one, and I thought, okay, well, now I have to start doing a bit of a a yeah, film festival of his work. It's incredible. It's not as perfect of a film as Children of Paradise, but, like, what is? But there are really interesting parallels, because that one was made in 42, and so they had to deal with more strict issues around censorship and what was and wasn't allowed in order to get your film passed. And... It's more overtly a fantasy film, but it also takes place in this kind of medieval castle like period setting that has lots of extras and lots of this really gorgeous set design. And she has a very similar role where she plays this kind of ambiguous, mysterious character who tries to not pick a moral side. And so it's sort of like by telling this fantasy story about these kind of maybe angelic figures he's really telling this whole story about the occupation highly recommended i had no idea when i was going into this like they start off with part one boulevard of crime and i'm just like oh okay you know part one i'm i'm ready and then when the movie ended and i was like wait wait a second what <laughs> like <laughs> What what what's going on and then like immediately starts back up again at least on the disc i was watching i was like oh, okay, this is unusual, and that they played the entire opening credits again. I was just like, this is really bizarre, because I remember when I was working at, um, you know, uh, video stores, that this was one of those two-tape things, but, you know, you put in the second tape, you don't get the credits again, so I was just like, what the hell's going on? I didn't realize that they had actually, like, split this into two films, because, what was it, Path didn't want to play a three-hour film, but they were content selling tickets at twice the price or selling two tickets i actually read that that was actually a, a nazi slash these thing that there had been thing had come down and again i was actually just looking through some of the articles that you always should read about providing and history stuff 
uh, and as I was jumping around, and supposedly by one of them, there had been some decree from the Nazis that they didn't want long movies, that there was something about it where they thought they were too esoteric and they wanted movies for the people. And so though, basically it's like 90 minutes. We don't want movies longer than 90 minutes. So basically the way they got around it was by making this and saying, oh, it's two movies. Don't know if that's true, but it, 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 it makes sense that they would actually do the credits twice and do it, you know, for that reason. Cause it certainly didn't premiere as two separate movies from what I could read it. It was shown as one. So I think that was actually another one of those devices to get away with the oppressive laws that they were sort of filmmaking under. At, le- at least, I guess I read one piece that said that, not being any historian, I can't always vouch for the veracity, but somebody wrote it. That's also what I've heard is that the the distributor, when they were making the film, said, you know, you you can't have it be this long. So why don't we just cut it into two parts and and have these credits roll again? But like, can you imagine if this came out and they made you wait another year for the second part? There would be riots. Like, you need to know what happens between Garance and Baptiste. You cannot wait a year or two. Yeah, I started this uh, late on Friday night, and so I had to wait, but I waited till Saturday morning. <laughs> movie's over wait what's going on and i was just like it, it's almost midnight i gotta go to bed <laughs> i can watch another hour and a half of this i don't know why i started it that late but i was just riveted as i was watching it so and i'm really surprised i've never seen this movie before because i don't know if either of you have read uh theater rosak's flicker which is one of my most favorite books ever part of that book is it's basically about movie collectors and movie fans and cinephiles and there's one character who loves children of paradise more than any other film and when she finds that it's in this um person's collection and she doesn't like that person she basically ends up doing a heist and stealing all of uh children of paradise so she can show it at her theater and just take it away from this person she feels doesn't deserve this film and just to hear her praise the movie so much, I was just like, oh, well, if she likes it this much and it's in this book that I love so much, I should really watch this. I don't know if it was just that the picture of um, Baptiste on the cover that kept me away for so long. Just like, oh, a mind movie. I don't need a mind movie in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, for whatever reason, I just stayed away until now. And I'm so I'm mad at myself that I hadn't seen this before, and I'm glad that I have now, but yeah, I've, I've wasted all those years without this in my life. I would very much suspect you're not alone, by the way. I think there's many of us yeah. who have a bit of aversion to mime as a concept, and that's always the images from the film are always, almost always seem to be that character. And, and even the mime in the film is so different from what I'm used to or what I think of. I mean, it's so beautiful and poetic and dramatic and 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 rich it's it's not you know the goofy funny you know mime jokes we've all gotten used to it, it is really mime is a very much different almost dance like kind of art form and but i i just i just know that you're not alone i mean i remember seeing the ads and it's always like you go oh it's a movie about a mime and it's like no it's it's a movie about a bunch of fascinating people one of whom is a brilliant mime who minds in a way that we don't see when you go to the park and there's the guy doing the goofy imitations of everybody (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i think it's also one of those movies that 
sort of makes people go, no, no, thank you, is when they hear those comparisons to things like Gone of the Wind and you read the plot description or you see some of the some of the other like release art that makes it look like maybe it's going to be some kind of merchant ivory period piece about the theater world in France in the 1800s, which if you don't like period pieces, like why would you ever want to watch that? But it's just the greatest. And when I heard about the making of it and just all well was made, you know, during Nazi occupation and it was so difficult for them to do it. I was just like, Gosh, what did they, how does this movie even look? Is it going to look okay? You know, if it took so much for them to get this thing made, is it going to be really kind of pieced together and just, you know, feel very rough around the edges? And it is completely the opposite to the point where I'm just like, how did they get away with this? Because this is just this most lavish production and just, just amazing to see. And then, yeah, like, I don't, they, it could be played like uh, Dogville style as far as just like it could be an empty set with lines on it because I'm so drawn into the characters set design be damned. But then the set design is so freaking wonderful that I'm just brought in. It feels almost like I'm being dropped into the movie as I was watching it. It doesn't feel like I'm watching this from the outside. It feels like I'm a part of it. it almost feels like well, I've taken a time machine and I'm just observing these characters because they're so well drawn. Well, and as difficult as things were, I mean, this was the most expensive film that had ever been made in France up to this time. I mean, they were given money, so they were fighting the limitations of, of a wartime state, but they did have money to spend. It was difficult to spend the money because they're just equipment wasn't available. Think, but you know, there was again in some of the stuff that you had, had shared with us. There's fascinating stuff about the French industry, and in that in fact, it was really in the 30s that everybody was broke before the war, before the occupation. The French film industry is sort of dead. There was no, there was no financing, and a lot of the financing was coming from other countries. And that basically, during the occupation, some money got pumped into filmmaking, and there was fights about how that was going to play out. But there was Italian money, there was German money because the Germans, the Germans, had, like Goebbels had wanted to shut down the French industry. He was really pissed that like people thought of France as this bastion of culture. But the person from Germany who actually got put in charge of it thought, no, 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 this is we're going to take advantage of this, and we're going to kind of co-opt it, but also co-opt it, you know, control it, but but have this outlet for, for, for you know, showing how cultured we are. And so, so all, in a funny way, French films sort of blossomed that a lot of interesting things got done in terms of just money getting pumped into things. It, they, it, there was a quote from, I forget which filmmaker, but one of the famous filmmakers at the time saying, you know, basically, you know, when freedom died for everybody else, when the Germans showed up, the filmmakers, we got, we got our freedom. We were suddenly able to make movies that we wanted to and spend the money and all of it, you know, and 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 they were very aware. It sounded like of that art that, like, you know, the Nazis were actually a good thing for the French film industry. Which, which, you know, is that weird thing of I, I, do you celebrate that or do you feel guilty about it or or some combination? Uh, which reminded me of like I, I once went to a conference of independent filmmakers from. The East and the West, and this was right. But this is this is right when the Berlin Wall and where the Berlin Wall had just fallen, and things were really changing. And there was a Russian filmmaker, and he made this amazing documentary about his experiences. But basically, said, "Yeah, my career is over. You know, in Russia, I was given money to make whatever film I wanted, and as long as I didn't criticize the government, I could do anything else I wanted." He said, "Now I'm sixty, whatever years old, and I'm thrilled that it's all fallen, and I'm done because nobody's going to give me. I'm not going to learn to go out and raise money." you know, at 65, 
uh, on to, to get to make my films because I'm usually the government saying, here, you know, do whatever you want. Just don't say anything bad about us. Uh, and it was, it, and he was very aware that there was like, and, and I think there's from the little I was reading, I think it was in that BFI book that you shared with us that there were filmmakers from France saying, yeah, you know, this was actually, we had freedom, ironically. I'm not sure who that quote is from specifically, but they did not actually have that much freedom. They made a lot of fantasy films and historical period pieces, much like Children of Paradise, because so somebody like Marcel Carnet, sort of to your point about the budgets, made these great poetic realist films in the late 30s, which he had no money for. So you can see these like much, much smaller productions, way fewer extras, way less lavish. But during the war, I think this really strange kind of unique thing happened in France where going exactly in line with what you were saying, because the Germans sort of had this weird level of kind of cultural respect for France, they wanted in general, they kind of wanted the French to like them. And so they put more money into certain cultural things like the film studios. And there's this whole fascinating history around the studio called Continental Films that operated during the 40s and was sort of the main like Vichy film studio. But what wound up happening in 1945 and 1946 is a lot of those filmmakers who were doing so well in the early 40s and making so many films, everybody turned on them. And a lot of them had trouble getting their careers going in the late 40s and into the 50s. Or like Carnet, if they did, people just didn't take them seriously or just sort of thought like, okay, you're a relic from this time that happened three years ago, but like you're not part of the present France. You're part of the old collaborationist France. So it wound up screwing a lot of people's careers. I did, I did find the quote, by the way. It was it was Marcel Lebert. I can't pronounce his name. I you know, but Marcel Lebert. And then he quotes us, the views expressed by Marcel Lebert when he wrote his memoirs in 1979 could be used to sum up what many filmmakers felt about the German occupation of the time. For the most part, we film directors have been working in an atmosphere of artistic slavery since 1930, even though France was then free. Now that it no longer was, and the Germans had the whip hand, the situation was completely reversed, and we regained the right to complete artistic freedom. So that was his thing at, you know, again, I'm sure within, however, within not being able to do a lot of subjects that would get them to be crushed by the Germans. Sure. And I think if you're somebody who just is like an average run of the mill studio director and you want to make your films, you're not involved with the resistance, you're not Jewish none of your close family or friends are and you just want to make some movies i think for those people they were also given more freedom because some of the big name filmmakers like jean renoir left the country and so it's like all that competition is (laughs) temporarily out of the way but it's it's such a weird situation when you think about how just like rabid France was in 45 and 46 and like anyone who stayed was sort of punished but anyone who left was also punished like it just it seemed like an awful time to be an artist in in France I want to say this whole story that you're telling as far as the continental films I mean that was 
I think we talked about that when we discussed uh, Le Corbeau, the uh, Clouseau film, because because Clouseau and was it Becker also, and there were like a few directors kind of came, yeah, yeah, they came to prominence because they were great directors, but but they were also able to kind of flourish under the you know this this Nazi regime, and then yeah, would I mean it was tough for Clouseau after the war if memory serves, and then Becker he didn't. Well, he lived until 60, I think, but yeah, well, he, he didn't necessarily make as many films after. No, and Clouseau got like officially banned from filmmaking by the French government. And then a few years later, all of these like directors and artists and writers like wrote a letter on his behalf and they were like, okay, fine. <laughs> well, the thing is, Corbeau, as I remember it, is actually pretty out there politically. I mean, that I remember when it's. Yeah. Seen it. You, you managed to get this made under the Nazis. And that that's the thing is that I did. I remember hearing what we were talking about, which is that he got sort of, yeah, he got every turn on him. And I thought, well, wait a minute. This guy was in the middle of the occupation making what's clearly a film. I mean, pretty obviously a film attacking collaboration. I I, I never quite understood the, the throwing blame on the guy because he was like, uh, he may have been making movies under the Nazis, you know, control of the country, but he certainly wasn't just going along. But yeah, for some reason they decided to like kind of blame him for 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 not leaving. I guess yeah, it was like what you were talking about. Yeah, it's a difficult time, which makes it even crazier that Carnet was able to pull off Children of Paradise. Because like in comparison, Le Corbeau is definitely way more overtly political, but it feels also like a much smaller film, it's much smaller, more contained. Whereas this just so many feelings. From what I understand, too, after the war and when the Cahiers du Cinema crowd came up, they were not big fans of Carnet because he kind of represented the past and represented that poetic realism, that uh, tradition of quality that they just decried. And so he was just kind of vilified a little bit by the, the Cahiers du Cinema folks and just not given the respect for that I think he you know, kind of deserved. I mean, all the great film. I mean, there were so many great filmmakers, whether it was Carnet or or uh, Clouseau. They, they, they were all that generation, the, the Trousseau or Truffaut generation really turned their back on those guys. And, and they're great filmmakers. I mean, I think that they did take film forward at another level, but there is a weird thing when you look back and you think of all the great film, French filmmakers from the 50s, 60s, 70s, Turning on the, you know, they like they what was this? They would for the cinema of quality, but they would say it like completely snarky, like you know, like oh, they're making cinema of quality, like Carnet. Like these were amazing filmmakers, you know. It was like very, it's very odd to to sort of look back at that generational battle when you realize, well, yes, you got we were doing something new, but what came before you was pretty amazing too. There would be no breathless without poetic realism and without Carnet doing things like Port of Shadows and Le Jour Celeve. It's so almost ironic and it makes them seem like giant babies having temper tantrums because they would praise the crap out of Hollywood films, sometimes even not very good ones. But then it's like... They could praise all kinds of things, except they just had these real blinders where directors that their directors, their parents age, they were basically like, no, your work is terrible. And it's like, OK, <laughs> all right, Junior. 
that's that whole kill your idols kind of thing. Like where the, the punk rockers were just like all, all old music sucks, you know? And it's like, not really. I mean, I can see why maybe you don't like prog rock and stuff, but there's still some good prog rock guys. Don't just throw it all out. It's like it didn't apply to everyone. Like Robert Bresson, who was also one of those directors sort of like sliding some films in at the very end of the occupation. And also Jean Cocteau, who did the same thing with Beauty and the Beast. Like they still revered Bresson and Cocteau. It was just maybe because Carnet made this lavish period piece i i don't know it doesn't make any sense because normally they had pretty good taste i mean i think it was i think it's a realism element you know i mean if you think about cocteau and brisson they were there was an experimental element to all their films they they, they were not classic whereas becker who i love uh carnet you know, were making more straightforward narratives they were doing it beautifully incredible cinematography but they were sort of telling a straightforward story so i think that that was I, again, I'm not endorsing as saying it's insane and nonsense, but I think there, that was the thing. You were you were allowed to be older if you were a little avant-garde. But if you just told a great story really well, then you were it, by nature a sellout, which is insane. But that seems to have been the, the, the dividing line. Yeah, this is one that I need at some point in my life. I need to see a 35 millimeter screening in a big gigantic gigantic IMAX theater or something. <laughs> there isn't a great even Blu-ray of this film. Um, uh, you know, there was this restoration that was done a few years back, and, and at least most people felt it was a disaster and that it, it you know, killed the contrast and it did all sorts of really bad things. And there's never been a release. I mean, I still have my old Criterion DVD because most people I know who really know the period in the film say that's a lot better than even the, the Blu-rays that were put out after it. Uh, because the 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 restoration was done by the French government was so weak and kind of really made it look terrible. And I'm not an expert in film restoration, but that seemed to be a fairly universally held opinion uh, that it was really reviled. And so, you know, I, my hope would be that this gets, you know, gets restored in a way that people who know the film think actually looks amazing, as opposed to looks really terribly disappointing. Yeah, I, I'd sort of forgotten about that. So really, you're just saying that seeing it 35, it's like, yeah, I, I don't. Because certainly this would beg, beg for, uh, let's say, a, a 4K made off of the original negatives or whatever. But I do remember when that that came, the Blu-ray came out some years back, and everybody was like, "What the hell did they do?" And was and it the Studio Canal release? It made well. It was. I think there were a few different releases, and they all were trashed. I mean, I think I don't. I think Criterion might have done its own. I think I'd, ha I'd have to look up on my because I I collect films on disc and stuff. And I, but I remember reading like there are no. There are no high def versions of this that aren't awful. Um, I, I don't remember who actually did the restoration. I can sort of quickly look and see if I can find it. But um, uh, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that whoever put out the UK Blu-ray, I don't remember being super impressed with the restoration. But I think that's the disc that Daniel Bird, who you've had as a guest on here before, he put together uh, like a making of documentary that is is great but i don't know why certain things like i've heard the same thing about orson the release of orson wells the trial which is another insanely gorgeous film that the the restoration just was bad that's a shame it apparently the thing was that it was so heavily filtered in terms of dnr and things that basically just lost a lot of detail 
It was this 4K that was done by Clear Laboratories and all that. I mean, I'm just reading one review. While Pathé's restoration and reconstruction of this classic French film might well be very impressive, their high-definition transfer is terrible. Traces of moderate to very heavy filtering are easily noticeable throughout the film. Detail and clarity are seriously compromised. And there's so many details in this film. It's, it's so gorgeous. Why would you... One of my biggest pet peeves with Blu-ray restorations is like, don't get rid of the film grain. Like, we're here for the film grain. Don't scrub it out. Yeah, it's actually the there are actually examples of like where where you look at the the, the DVD and a photo of the DVD and a photo of the Blu-ray and like literally faces of people in the crowd are disappearing into just like blur. That's what it was that the people were just yeah. Well, the, I can tell you that the version streaming on Criterion Channel, I believe, is their DVD. Well, that so was you, the, it, that was you somehow have or and that's oh, yes. why yeah they did the prior one. Nice. yeah. The opening of the version that I saw had the had a little thing about the restoration, and I could have sworn that they said that it was taken from a nitrate print. So now I'm just like, hmm, I, I'm going to have to talk with the uh, folks that run the nitrate film festival out at the uh, Eastman House and see if they would maybe ever show Children of Paradise. That would yeah, be well, this, this reconstruction was apparently done by Eclair, but then the scanning and 4K elements were done by uh, Retrovada. In, in Italy, and they have actually have a very mixed reputation about, you know, that they've done some things really well, but some things not at all. Um, and I think the one that, that, that the earlier one, the earlier uh, criteria one was, I think, done by Pathé themselves. That would make sense. I mean, it's like universally regarded as one of the greatest French films of all time. So, like, why there isn't a good, a good restoration doesn't make any sense. I'm looking at screen comparisons on DVD Beaver, and for the folks listening at home, if you ever want to know if your uh, movie has extras or which version to buy, DVDBeaver.com is a, a fantastic site to use. Um, and yeah, these these comparisons are wild to see. Some of them just look like you put the uh, unsharp mask on uh, in uh, Photoshop. It just it's it's not good. <laughs> it's not good at all. This is the site that I use all the time for what version of this movie am I going to buy, which one has the most and the best extras, and which one has the best um, transfer quality. So very necessary site, especially because Amazon sucks for uh, telling you what extras are oh, on yeah. things. No, I, in fact, if I, can, if I can give pitches to a couple other ones, because I, I do use DVD River a lot and really like them. I also use Blu-ray.com, but even more than their critics... Uh, in their comments, there's a lot of people who are in the film industry and talk about these things and really know their stuff inside out. Um, and I follow their forums all the time when new releases come out because, I mean, there's the usual lunatics that you'll find on any forum on online, but but there's also actual filmmakers and people who do film restoration and, you know, commenting on this is why this is a good rest. You know, the, the critics at Blu-ray.com are a mix. Some of them are good, some of them not so good, but the I find the comments, if you figure out who actually, the people who actually have spent their lives doing this stuff, can be tremendously insightful. And there's one other one that I'll put a pitch for, because I think all these things need support. There's one called DVD Compare, which is not a review site at all, but it probably has the most in-depth listing of each version of a film that's been put out and all these special things and extras and all that. It's not, again, they don't review the images, but they, they have the most detailed breakdown of Every special feature, how many minutes it is, how many, you know, and that I also can find very useful if you're thinking about different versions of, of a release. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, because there's so many times where I'm just like, 
which one does this have extra scenes? Is this one not? And you know, there's too many times where I will order what I think is the right disc and get the wrong one. And it's just like, here's this bare bones POS where it's like extras menus trailer, you know, <laughs> it's like, great. Thanks. You don't even have subtitles on this thing. I really kind of need that. Amazon, I've got to say, as, again, as a person who collects discs, loves them, is is a terrible source of information. In fact, they're often wrong about things. You know, I've actually had to send things back where I'd said, you know, the site claims X and I got the disc and it's not that, it's this. And, you know, so I would avoid trusting their their descriptions like the play. Oh, God, yeah. All right, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Jules. And we do in filmographies. We've compiled a list of actors. We draw a name at random and tackle their entire acting filmography from start to finish. Or at least as much of it that still exists and hasn't been lost to time. Jason loves actor Billy Crudup in films like Jesus' Son or Almost Famous. But will he love Billy in movies like Monument Avenue or World Traveler? No, they're not good. And Jules loves actor Rada Mitchell in films like High Art and Pitch Black. But will he love Rada? in movies like When Strangers Appear or Love and Other Catastrophes. You'll just have to tune in to find out. Some of the names that pop up might surprise you. Some of the films as well. So join us every Saturday on the podcast app of your choice or via YouTube as We Do in Filmographies. That's right. We'll be concluding French month next week with a look at Louis Bunuel's L'Age d'Or. Until then, I want to thank my co-host, Sam and Keith. So, Keith, what have you been up to lately, sir? Not all that much. <laughs> no, I, I, I have a project that my wife and I have been putting together literally for coming up on 20 years. And I probably mentioned this every time I've been on the show because it's coming up on 20 years. I've been doing the show for 20 years. So, uh, And we're in that, that uh, indie film hellscape of of we're getting close no we're not we're getting close no we're not so right now we're in one of our we're very getting we're getting close moments but stay tuned to the channel because by this time next week it may fall apart again the world needs more keith gordon and sam what's the latest sorry and sam what's the latest with you most of what i've been plugging for french cinema month is my podcast which is death nerve um my Patreon, I just started doing a Godard retrospective series and, and sort of related to Children of Paradise, but I haven't plugged this in a while. Uh, a year or so ago, my book, uh, The Legacy of World War II and European Art House Cinema came out. And so there's a lot of stuff kind of tangentially related to some of the things we talked about today in there. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Thank you.